1: It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are in Johannesburg in South Africa, and you can find us on 9625 kHz, that is on the 31 meter band If in Southern Africa. You can also find us on 802 on the DSCV audio bouquet. My name is Spumilele Zondi. I'm with Jola Netulo, with Matabula and Mosiburi Makura. Your top stories. Forty years on, South Africa remembers one of its anti apartheid giants. MSF suspends its work in Southeastern Central African Republic. In economics, Africa's biggest bank, by assets, appoints Sim Chabalala as sole chief executive officer. And in sports, the 2017 KOSAFA Women's Championships only a day away. Here's Jola Netulo.
2: Thank you, Spumilele. Good afternoon. Somali government forces have reportedly regained control over town on the border with Kenya after al-Shabaab militants stormed an, an army base, causing heavy clashes in which at least 17 people died. Islamist insurgents attacked the base at Balawad Hawar with a car suicide bombing before entering the compound. According to Omar Mahmoud, Horn of Africa researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, the latest attack shows the militant group is still posing a threat in the region.
3: There were some clashes. Al-Shabaab attacked the area above Adhawo, which is right near the Kenyan border, and uh, was actually able to force some of the the local um, militias guarding it to flee into Kenya. So it was a pretty big attack on their part. Uh, They followed one of their classic sort of um, attack models, which was a suicide car bomb followed by uh, Al-Shabaab militants uh, running into the base. Uh, So it conforms to some patterns we've seen before, and uh, especially over the past few years, Al-Shabaab's In targeting some of these military bases, some of them AMISOM, some of them not, as in this case. Uh, So it it kind of uh, conforms to some of these patterns we've been seeing.
2: Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has addressed a joint sitting of the first session of the 12th Parliament, which was boycotted by the opposition coalition Nasa and members of the judiciary. The opposition boycotted the session, arguing that Kenyatta has no powers to convene the new parliament until fresh presidential elections are held on October 17th. Kenya's Supreme Court earlier now the results of the August elections that declared Kenyatta the winner. In today's speech, Kenyatta disagreed with the opposition's views.
4: It must be clear that the set term of a president is embedded until a new one is sworn in. All of these are part of our laid down constitutional processes. So therefore, honorable members and fellow Kenyans, no matter the political noises that are often loudest during elections, I want to ensure every single Kenyan and the world that every arm of government is in place and operational. Let no one for a single moment envision that there is a void. There is no lacuna.
2: South Africa's former president, Khalema Motlante, says it would be be good for the governing ANC to lose the next general election in 2019. He was speaking during the BBC's Hard Talk program. Motlante says the electorate will vote out the ANC if it continues to be, as he put it, associated with corruption and failure. Motlante says some elements are only in the governing party for the money they can make.
5: It will be good for the
6: ANC itself because... Those elements who are in it for the largesse will quit, will desert it. And only then would the possibility arise for salvaging whatever is left of it.
2: It's exactly three years since the collapse of a guest house at the Synagogue Church of All Nations in Nigeria left at least 115 people dead, more than 80 of them South Africans. The collapse of the building in Lagos was described as one of the worst disasters ever to strike a place of worship. Melanie
7: Moses reports. The incident made world headlines and sent shockwaves through South Africa. Families were left in a state of despair, many having to wait for months before the bodies of their loved ones were identified and repatriated. Church leader, Pastor TB Joshua, said the tragedy was an act of sabotage as an aircraft was seen flying over the premises before it collapsed. But state officials said the church was to blame for not getting the correct structural approval for the building. The engineers and the church are facing 111 counts of gross negligence and manslaughter. The hearing resumed. Next month, and finally, President
2: F- uh, Emmanuel Macron has defended France's preparations for and response to Hurricane Irma on a visit to the French to the French Caribbean territories. He says it wasn't possible to anticipate far in advance exactly where the hurricane would hit nor its eventual intensity. The Dutch King William Alexander has visited the Dutch side of the island of Saint Martin and said he was shocked.
4: From the moment we could see the island from the aircraft, you could tell I've never seen anything like this before. I have seen a lot of devastation caused by forces of nature or by war in my life, but this I have never seen.
2: For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
1: It is 17.06 Central African time. Thank you very much, Jolane, for that news update. Let's start in South Africa, where today South Africans celebrated the life of Steve Beagle as the 12th of September commemorates his death under the hands of the apartheid government. Steve Beagle is known for his views against racism in South Africa and his philosophy, which was inspired by black consciousness. As a leader of the South African Students' Organization, he expressed his strong pro- pro-black views, through the Frank Talk publication, which became problematic for the apartheid regime because it affirmed blackness. More from Gosnati Biko, the son of Steve Biko.
4: I think that when uh, Steve Biko was murdered in 1977, the plan, I guess, was to ensure that his ideas do not spread and influence South Africa. In fact, one of the reasons that he was being uh, hunted by the South African police at the time is that he was heading an initiative to bring together uh, unity between the various liberation movements, which was deemed to be a dangerous thing by the security establishment. And, uh, and this is because his ideas themselves were ones that uh, taught South Africans, in particular black South Africans, the importance of being agents of their own change. So as we commemorate him many years later, I think we should move away from uh, you know issues around death and all of that and begin to look closer at some of the lessons that he taught us. In a country now that is struggling to gain traction in uh, our democracy, it would be useful for us to go back to some of the basics. How do you engage communities and create a sense of agency and activism once more at the level of communities so that we can get our people, 55% of them who live in poverty, beyond mm. the poverty line.
8: And in terms of moving away from death, as you say, and just learning the lessons, um, uh, Steve Biko has, uh, uh, you know, for the longest time, been an inspirational figure, um, but has uh, more so in contemporary South Africa. Uh, we've seen him um, inspiring movements such as the Feesmas 4 movement even. Why do you think that um, of late uh, Steve Biko has become such a, a reference, strong reference point for many South Africans?
4: Well, uh, two things. The first is that we buried a 30-year-old man in Steve Biko. He would be 70 today. And so there's a sense in which young people do relate to him as a young leader. His best writings are f- from the age 19 up to about 29. And so they connect with him because I guess of it's, it's a generational thing. But second, I think he does provide political vocabulary that is very useful for campaigns such as uh, Roads Must Fall in particular and certainly she's a uh, must for. And so he has both uh, influenced that movement, and I think in many ways, in fact, young people themselves are adding to what was his legacy and giving us a contemporary version mm-hmm. of uh, his language.
8: And there are many who claim, uh, Gosnati at this time, that um, he would not be very happy with the current uh, political and social situation in the country. Do you believe that uh, these projections um, um, of Biko in the present are fair?
4: Well, I have not come across a leader, mm. uh, dead or alive, who is happy with where the country is at the moment and uh, in or outside of the ruling party for that matter so it's not uh, a, a mythical statement that mm. he would be unhappy he would not be uh, happy when as uh, we were saying earlier uh, 55% of our people are living in, in poverty that's certainly not what we struggled for and
8: yeah. um, and just uh, before we let you go um uh, society you know in terms of claiming uh, that legacy and those lessons that you speak of um one of the things that i think has has gained quite a lot of conversation um, particularly on the social networks is how uh, do we as a society teach the young ones you know about um, icons such as steve biko um how would you how would you see suggest, you know, uh, we go about uh, making sure that that uh, baton is being passed on of the the things that he stood for?
4: I think this is the part about legacy preservation that excites me the most. There's a danger in which people like Steve Beek or Oliver Trump or Nelson Mandela (laughs) can be these blurred icons where people recognize their faces without knowing much the substance uh, that is behind them. So I uh, suppose one of the ways to do this is to ensure that Wherever you have a t-shirt, you have a book, you have a dialogue, as we speak now as part of the commemoration, we've just begun a youth dialogue here at the Steve Biko Center where I am, where there's about 500 young people who are in conversation. It's an intergenerational conversation with some of the activists who were a part of the Black Consciousness Movement. We do that on a daily basis, in uh, fact, mm-hmm. at the Center and various programs of, uh, of the Foundation. Mm-hmm. The issue is to bring out those substantive lessons. So that we remember Mandela for more than just being a nice old man, he made a particular contribution. So did Steve Biko.
8: Mm. And just uh, finally, if I can put you on the spot a bit before I let you go, mm-hmm. um, uh, for you this is not just you know another icon, another man, so to speak. This was your father, um, and every year you know the country does focus um, on him around this time and 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 the lessons that we can learn from that. What does this time mean for you, Gwaznat?
4: Well, it's a, it, it's a time of rejuvenation. I think my family has long gone past the point of uh, weeping and, mm. uh, and, and mourning. Mm. We celebrate his life. Um, and to the extent that we don't have a say in who our parents are, mm. uh, had I had one, I would have chosen a father exactly mm. uh, like Steve Beagle. So I'm extremely proud of him.
1: That was Ngosinati Beagle, the son of Steve Beagle, on the line with Zikona Miso. Meanwhile, President Jacob Zuma today visited the Jose Mamburu Correctional Center to lay a wreath at the cell in which Mr. Bigo died. Bigo died in a police cell at the then Pretoria Central Prison, now Jose Mamburu Correctional Center, following his arrest in August 1977. He had been savagely beaten by apartheid security police while in a police detention in Port Elizabeth and sustained serious injuries, including brain damage. His death caused outrage locally and More from Matthew Graham, lecturer of history at the University of Dundee in the UK.
9: I mean, I think one of the really startling things is actually how little Biko has been remembered since the advent of democracy in South Africa. I mean, as you've mentioned today, you know, Zuma um, has gone to um, to the prison where he died and also uh, President Zuma also opened the first key site of commemoration at his grave in Ginsburg on Human Rights Day uh, to to, to posthumously celebrate his life. But these, are, these actions are a long time coming, um, given the importance of his leadership during the 1970s. Um, so I think the best way to kind of remember Biko beyond kind of memorials and plaques is, which many people will probably never see, is to actually be having conversations like the one we're having today. Uh, we should be talking to as many people as possible about the philosophy of black consciousness, not just on the anniversary of his death, but actually more regularly to discuss the significant role and impact that Biko had in changing attitudes and mindsets during the liberation struggle.
8: Mm. And now in the article of yours um in the conversation you say that he deserves to be recognized as one of the towering heroes of the anti apartheid uh, struggle. Elaborate on that thought for us.
9: I mean I think when we think of the uh, the wider anti apartheid struggle you know key figures immediately spring to mind such as you know Nelson and Winnie Mandela Oliver Tambo um, Desmond Tutu Chris Hani you know all of them who were vital cogs in the liberation of South Africa. Um, However, whenever I speak to people in South Africa and also here in the UK, a lot of people don't remember Biko, and if they do, it is usually only because he died in police custody. Mm -hmm. However, I think he was extremely significant to South Africa's liberation. It must be recognized that during the 1960s and early 1970s, when the main liberation movements had been banned and were in exile, it was black consciousness that filled the void and sparked a new phase in the struggle against apartheid. And Biko himself was crucial in stressing the need for Psychological freedom, and only once psychological liberation had been achieved, um, then the the black population could work towards physical liberation and free themselves from this sense of inferiority. Um, And this this is a radical alternative outlook, and it created a new sense of defiance within South Africa against apartheid oppression and violence. And I think it became a really significant challenge to white minority rule. You know, for example, once once an idea um, takes takes root, it's it's hard to crush and it flourishes. And I think. Um, The adoption of Black Consciousness ideas created in Biko's own own words himself, a revolutionary consciousness. Um, This in part fueled radicalism and confrontation of the apartheid state, which actually led to the events in Soweto in 1976. Mm. And then the youth who had been kind of radicalized and more militant, um, many of them fled and joined the ANC or PAC in exile. Many of these organizations had been in exile for 16 years and were beginning to stagnate. So, you know, the ideas of Black Consciousness pushed forward by Biko helped people uh, within South Africa and abroad to reignite the liberation struggle. Therefore, the, you know the era of black consciousness led by Biko was a crucial phase, and it shouldn't yeah. be forgotten for stimulating this renewed sense of urgency.
8: Now, what what often comes up in conversation when um uh, uh, Steve Biko is being discussed is that um he doesn't get um he often gets overlooked um unlike other greats such as Udadu Nelson, and Mandela. Um, why is this the case in in your view, and um how can this be averted?
9: I think, first of all, I should point out that at the time, um, Steve Biko was actually very well-known in South Africa and beyond. You know, For example, Thousands were at his funeral. Um, you had songs by international musicians such as Peter Gabriel and Donald Woods' book uh, Biko was later turned into the very famous film Cry Freedom. So he was a popular figure in the 1970s and eighties. However, I do think with the passing of time, um, there has been a decreasing awareness. Um, and this is due to, I think, a couple of main reasons. Uh, black consciousness itself is never really an effective movement as such. It was more of a philosophical idea than an organization. So when Biko died, um, the successor organization of was established, but without this talismanic and intellectual leader, it didn't have much influence afterwards, especially during the 1980s. But I think also for many of the younger generations who were black consciousness adherents, um, around the Soweto era, many of them who did flee joined the ANC or were later imprisoned on Robben Island, and with no other organization to join, they joined the ANC and kind of moved towards its program of action. And then by the time we get to the 1980s, the anti-apartheid struggle within South Africa had stepped up through the UDF and Kasatu, And also the things like the international Free Nelson Mandela campaign had put Mandela himself as a symbolic figurehead. So Biko's influence began to diminish during the struggle itself in the 1980s. And finally, since 1994, the ANC has largely dominated the national conversation concerning the history of liberation and there's only really a discussion of Biko's legacy when it suits
8: them. Most recently um, we had the Fees Fall um, campaign and uh, Biko's uh, ideals and um, some of his lessons were very much a part of uh, the, the narrative um, during that Fees Must Fall um, campaign with the students you know, taking to the streets um, calling for free education in terms of uh, Biko's legacy and his relevance now in 2017, um, uh, do you believe that um, he, he could possibly have more of a relevance now more than ever, seeing as young people are really um, rising up in this part of the world?
9: I think so. I really do. Um, I think, I mean, some of the fundamental psychological legacies of apartheid still remain within South Africa. And some of the things that Biko was talking about all those years back will, will still remain very relevant. And yeah, I think you mentioned you know, fees Must Fall and Rose Must Fall movements. And they have the essence of Biko's black consciousness within them, um, especially as the youth were challenging the persistence of kind of colonial appendages of power especially through the kind of the education system. And I think their demands for a decolonized curriculum, issues which were ignored during the transition era and also in the post-apartheid state, are fundamental. And in that sense, I mean, the the young people are kind of trying to create a, you know, there there remains an ongoing struggle. Um, And there's a a position to push for greater pride and self-assertion in the face of these unchanged power structures. And these are things that Beaker was talking about 40 years, well, more than 40 years ago now. And so yes, I think he still has an extremely important relevance within South Africa today.
1: That is Matthew Graham, lecturer in history at the University of Dundee in the UK, talking to Zeko Namiso.
0: 46 days to to go to the 100th birthday of the late Reginald Oliver Tambo.
1: 1719 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. As we give you news from an African perspective, my name is Spumelelizundi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Now, let's come back to South Africa, where... South African advocacy group, the Safe South Africa campaign, made a call to Corporate South Africa to urgently review business relations with auditing firm KPMG. This follows investigations that are suggesting that KPMG was involved in helping the controversial Gupta family, close allies of South Africa's President Jacob Zuma, to use state funds to pay for a lavish private wedding. KPMG audited Linkway trading allegedly used to channel about $2.3 million of South Africa's taxpayers' money to fund the infamous 2013 Sun City Gupta wedding. KPMG is also alleged to have played a central role in several controversial Gupta deals. These include the acquisition of a coal mine. Save South Africa says South African businesses should cancel their contracts where possible. We're now joined on the line by the organization's campaign coordinator, David Little. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, David. Hi, how are you doing? I'm um, all right. Now, David, uh, um, KPMG can say that this is probably, uh, possibly only one allegation and they've done a lot of good work in South Africa. You, uh, what would you say to that?
10: Um, I'd say... I think it doesn't matter how much good work you've done. If you're stealing it or if you're facilitating stealing or theft or fraud or state capture, that means you need to be held accountable for that. And I think it's important that businesses hold their service providers, such as KPMG, in this instance, responsible for that.
1: Mm. Um, KPMG has come out, though, to say that they should have stopped working for the Gupta family sooner. What do you make of that? You don't forgive them on that?
10: Uh, I don't think it's enough. Um, so, it's an important first step, sure, but at the end of the day, they need to come out and have a full clean-out, full disclosure, and there must be accountability for all those involved. We need to know what they, what they did that was unacceptable, that was um, a breach of ethics, um, and we need to know how it affected South Africa
1: um when you then call on businesses to stop doing work with south africa um you are not letting uh, perhaps processes take place because kpmg has said that they're looking into this matter and kpmg international is assisting in that uh, you you're not happy with that
10: Sorry, can you, can you
1: repeat that? I'm saying that um, KPMG does say that they have um, processes that um, are dealing with this particular matter, and they've said that KPMG International is assisting in those processes. Are you not happy with that?
10: Um, we're not happy if it's not um, transparent, and we need to have an idea that this is very thorough. Like I said, it has to be a full cleanup, full disclosure. Um, if there's not that, then we won't be satisfied. Um, if all they do is they have an internal process and they say this is resolved, that won't be enough.
1: Mm. Um. And uh, the uh, what do you expect the businesses to actually do now? Because are you saying they should stop doing business with KPMG?
10: Uh, I think it will be an important first step, yeah. Um, KPMG, has facil- in this scenario, has facilitated state capture in South Africa, and which is essentially denying service and harming many, many South Africans. So it's very important that every individual in South Africa, including those in power, especially in the business role in this case, Um, take a stand and review their relationship with um, KPMG.
1: Mm -hmm. And the matter is currently uh, before the independent regulatory board for auditors. How do you see that playing out?
10: Um, Well, we have to wait and see um, how that process goes, but I don't think we should wait, I don't think we should rely on that process. Um, At the end of the day, KPMG has an important, as an auditor plays an important role in society. Their reputation is what people trust when they make use of KPMG. If KPMG doesn't, irrespective of this probe, doesn't adequately disclose what happened and take account for it, um, I don't think we should trust them again.
1: As Save South Africa, David, why um, have you taken it upon yourself to take on this particular matter with KPMG?
10: Well, say South Africa is looking for social justice in South Africa, and in particular, we're fighting state capture at the moment. Um, we don't just want to stop cor- We don't believe corruption is present only in government. Government cannot be corrupt without players outside government assisting. So it is essential that all South Africans hold those individuals account, accountable, whether they are in public sector or private sector. So that's essentially why we're going after KPMG in this scenario, not to mention the severity
9: of what they've done.
1: All right. Um, and so what are, are going to be the processes that you are going to be following and from now going forward? Pickets maybe,
6: or what else?
10: Um, at the moment, like I said, we're appealing to businesses. Um, we will be looking at other options as the situation progresses. Um, but I can't say specifically what we'll be doing on, uh, in other options just yet.
1: And you're appealing to business, but have you tried engaging KPMG?
10: Um, We haven't engaged with KPMG directly yet, however, we have appealed as well to business associations, which KPMG is either part of or aligned with, um, and asked them to engage directly with KPMG.
1: All right. Thank you very much for joining us, David.
10: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: All right. That is David Liddell, who is the campaign coordinator for Save South Africa, joining us there on the line. It is 1725 Central African time. Remember that you can send us those emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also find us on Twitter. That is channelafrica1 on Twitter, channelafrica numerical1 on Twitter. On SMS, we're also available. That number is plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine a3 is 0 27 796 957 930 your time is 1726
5: we have great news for you channel africa has gone mobile if you have a cell phone you can now download the mobile app for android you can get it on google play get the latest news from africa Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives.
2: Oliver Tambo was the longest-serving leader of the ruling African National Congress Party in exile for 30 years.
1: Your time is 1726 Central African Time. The program you're listening to is Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with you until... 1800 hours Central African time. That is 1800 hours Central African time. Now, the Somali government forces have reportedly regained control of a town on the border with Kenya after Al-Shabaab militants stormed an army base there yesterday, causing heavy clashes in which at least 17 people died. Islamist insurgents attacked the base at Balad Hao early in the morning with a car suicide bombing before entering the compound. Formed in 2006, Al-Shabaab wants to topple the Western-backed government and impose its strict interpretation of Islam in the country that is Somalia. Omar Mahmoud, a Horn of Africa researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, has more on the significance of the latest attack.
3: There were some clashes. Al-Shabaab attacked the area above Adhawo, which is right near the Kenyan border, and uh, was actually able to force some of the the local uh, militias guarding it to flee into Kenya. So it was a pretty big attack on their part. Uh, They followed one of their classic sort of um, attack models, which was a suicide car bomb followed by uh, Al-Shabaab militants running into the base. Uh, So it conforms to some patterns we've seen before, and uh, especially over the past few years, Al-Shabaab's in targeting some of these military bases, some of them AMISOM, some of them not, as in this case. Uh, so it, it kind of uh, conforms to some of these patterns we've been seeing.
6: Do we know how many people have been killed as a result of uh, these clashes?
3: Uh, well, I think there's varying reports coming out, and, and al-Shabaab uh, has claimed some some numbers on their own, which tend to be higher than what we get elsewhere. Uh, but I think what you mentioned, around 17 uh, soldiers killed, I, I think is, is what uh, seems to be the prevailing notion. Uh, al-Shabaab's claimed, I believe, around double that. So it's kind of hard to say in this sort of environment, uh, uh, especially so quickly after the incident. There's some uh, conflicting narratives that always uh, surround casualties.
6: Now, what does this latest attack mean, Omar, especially after reports recently that the group has been somewhat neutralized by President Formaggio's administration? Does this mean the group is still posing a threat, do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that al-Shabaab retains military capabilities and is still the biggest security threat in south-central Somalia. I don't think anything's changed on that front, even with Karmaj's election and his his provision of an amnesty deal uh, he's been able to peel away a few members of, of Al Shabaab and whatnot, but uh, the organization as a whole retains this this capability, and um, this is just another indication, another incident of that. Uh, we've, we've seen a number of attacks over the past six months, uh, similar to this, or, or suicide attacks in Mogadishu and whatnot, uh, that really just indicate that they're not going away anywhere anytime soon.
1: That is Omar Mahmoud, Horn of Africa researcher at the Institute for Security Studies on the Land from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, talking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Munjarare. It is now time for your news headlines with Chola Netulo at 1730 Central African Time.
2: Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, Somali government forces have reportedly regained control of a town on the border with Kenya after Al Shabaab militants stormed an army base, causing heavy clashes in which at least seventeen people died. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has addressed a joint sitting of the first session of the 12th Parliament, which was boycotted by the opposition coalition Nasa and members of the judiciary. And finally, South Africa's former President Kholema Motlante says it would be good for the government governing ANC to lose the next general election in 2019. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo.
1: 1731 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. Thank you very much, Jolene, for that news update. Now, the health and survival of scores of HIV patients are at high risk after the International Medical Humanitarian Agency, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, was forced to suspend its HIV treatment program in the conflict-wrecked town of Zemio in Southeastern Central African Republic. To speak to us more about this, we joined on the line by Pukka Lindas, who is the emergency field coordinator from MSF in Zemio. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa.
11: Good afternoon.
1: Um, now, can you tell us about what happened that forced you to suspend operations there?
11: So um, at the end of June, uh, violence started in, uh, in Zemio town and the population had to flee. Uh, armed actors were fighting for uh, a couple of weeks with each other and people were uh, in the beginning looking for shelter in the hospitals and in the Catholic mission compound. But um, yeah, even later on an attack happened on the hospital and people had to flee again into the bush.
1: Mm, um, were these attacks common in, in, in the area and in the hospital?
11: Sorry, could you repeat your question?
1: Were these common attacks that, uh, that happened um, in the hospital and um, and in the area?
11: Yeah, so the, um, when the people were um, in June, um, armed actors entered our hospital and shot the baby uh, in the arms of a uh, mother. And a month later, uh, armed actors entered again the hospital and started open fire on uh, the displaced people who were living there which were around 7,000 people.
1: Mm, um, And would you say that as MSF you find that you are protected in that particular area?
11: Um, I think um, uh, it is important for MSF uh, and crucial for MSF that armed actors will respect the civilian population's medical facilities and humanitarian aid workers. And uh, at the moment, the population Uh, is fleeing and if you look around now in Zemio town it's it's completely empty and people had to flee into the bush and cross the river to DRC.
1: Um, And uh, what critical services do the people need there?
11: um, uh, MSF was supporting uh, the OPD in the hospital over there and also supporting uh, a big HRC uh, cohort from 1500 people uh, due to the fighting and the fleeing of the people, people uh, don't have access anymore to medical care. But also, uh, people who were on uh, on antiretroviral drugs are not having access anymore. For example, um, one of the patients uh, came to us, and uh, their house was being burned and looted, and also their drugs was being um, was being burned. So they uh, had to uh, break up their treatment.
1: Yeah, and as you are forced to suspend operations now, is there an alternative for those that are living there?
11: Um, so at the moment, uh, many people have fled, and we are trying to adapt our programming with being uh, adapting it to where the people are to create better access again into the bush, so people are able to be treated, for example, for malaria or the refill of HIV drugs, but also to uh, see what we can do to access the population in DRC. Mm.
1: Uh, You are saying that um, you are trying to create ways so people get
11: treatment in the bush? Yeah, correct. We have small teams trying to go into the bush to find the people, to improve access to healthcare again for them because the prevalence of, for example, malaria is very high and uh, people need treatment for that. Uh, but also, for example, for uh, respiratory infections. And they can go to the town because they don't feel safe there, so they flee to the bush.
1: Um, And how difficult is it to access people that need help in the bush?
11: At the moment, it's very challenging. Um, um, Most of the humanitarian aid workers have had to suspend their activities. Um, And... Yeah, for us, we're trying to adapt the programming as much as possible, but access is very challenging together with the security situation.
1: And are you working with any local groups, or is it just um, Doctors Without Borders um, exclusively at the moment? Is there a health system, for example, in the country that you can even work with?
11: The the local health system has been totally collapsed after the violence, the violence. Hospital is empty. Uh, it's not functioning. People are not living in the town anymore. So um, the access at the moment related to healthcare is is really uh, at the moment what what MSF is able to support, which is at the moment unfortunately minimum. But with uh, the being mobile, we try to improve the access for healthcare.
1: Um, how safe are your healthcare workers when you now have to also flee um, the town and also have to go into um, into the bush to find those that need help?
11: Yeah, so including in, uh, together with with the civilian population who feel safe anymore, uh, many national staff, uh, many uh, many people had to flee, and including our our colleagues had to flee to the bush and also to DRC.
1: All right. Thank you very much for chatting to us. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you. That is Poka Lindes, who is the Emergency Field Coordinator for Doctors Without Borders, or MSF in Zemio in the Central African Republic and she tells us there that people are fleeing the town and they are running to the bushes because people feel unsafe in towns and um, she says that there had been an attack uh, uh, in, in the hospital where a baby was also shot in the arm during that attack and so they've had to suspend operations in the town, but they are still continuing to give assistance to those that need it um, in the bush as they as people have mostly fled to the bush as they, they're scared in the towns.
6: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public
1: radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective,
8: Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French, and English, giving you an African perspective.
2: Hi, my name is Tandalunyan Ndlovu, and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an
8: African
11: perspective.
6: Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
1: 17.38 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. The 13th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification is currently taking place in Ordo, People's Republic of China. Pradid Monga, Deputy Executive Secretary of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, says the meeting is focusing a number of programs including the 2030 Developmental Agenda.
5: This COP which is being held in of orders, please note that it is the first major environmental convention that is being hosted by China. Second, this COP is focusing on many strategic issues where land agenda becomes more a central piece of global environmental and developmental agenda. For instance, there are several key areas where parties are working together to really focus on. First one. Strategic plan for 2018 to 2030 basically to align strategic plan of UNCCD for, with 2030 development agenda. Second, implementation of land degradation neutrality targets. This is where we are making considerable progress. As of now, 169 countries have been affected by desertification, land degradation and drought and I'm very happy to mention that 112 countries have committed to reach LDN targets, land degradation neutrality, the last two one being Brazil and India. There are a number of new key issues such as drought, drought preparedness, where you want to really focus on early warning systems, capacity building and resilience, forced migration and gender issues. At this COP13, some new initiatives have been also launched to enable policymakers to act and this is Global Land Outlook which was released today, one of the first publications we have released on Land Outlook at cop 30 and secondly today evening we will be launching first Land Degradation Neutrality Fund which is a public-private investment mechanism and also one of the first sustainable development goals related fund. Basically COP13, we want to be bold, we want to be transformative, and the focus is more on planning to implementation. This is more from vision to action on the ground. So we are very happy that we are making very considerable progress there at COP13.
6: Now looking at the development agenda, as you say, 2030, what would you say is the involvement of the local communities in areas whereby you find that there's a lot of land degradation and uh, desertification taking place
5: see here in unccd and of course in cop 13 also the main focus is how we can bring all stakeholders together government private sector civil society and local communities we believe that unless and until local communities have ownership unless and until they are fully involved in implementation of UNCCD's mandate on desertification and land degradation and drought, we cannot achieve results. A very good instance is in China, they have reversed the trend of desertification by involving local communities in greening the deserts. For instance, in Kabuchi Desert, which is close to orders, is part of Inner Mongolia, with the private sector and local communities together with right policy of the government, they are greening almost 6,000 kilometers, square kilometers of uh, desert. That is almost like 600,000 of hectares of uh, desert will be green. If I really look at Africa or the Sahel and uh, region, we are almost looking at it covering almost 1920 countries. Where we are trying to have a green wall. Great Green Wall project funded by Global Environment Facility. And that's where local communities are fully involved in plantations, fully involved in water conservation measures, fully involved in food security value chain. So basically we are trying to make land productive, we are trying to restore land, uh, its ecosystem value. And of course, main focus is on economic development, livelihood options, and social empowerment, where there is a specific focus on women and youth.
6: And I can say, how are we succeeding in reversing some of the areas that have been desert areas for quite some time now?
5: See, everybody recognized here in COP 13 that desertification, land degradation, and drought are threats to global security. As we speak, there are around two billion hectares of global land degraded, and every year we are degrading almost you know 12 million hectares of land. The first call is to reverse this 12 million, which is I think as a part of LdN target setting that will be reversed. That is already working on that. But most importantly, also that uh, between now and 2030, we should reclaim more land with productivity for food security and other things, and also increase support for job-creating opportunities. There's a clear link between uh, security, stability, and sustainability of land. That's where UNCCD has launched a 3S program, where it is um, really promoted by Morocco and Kenya, two countries who are working very hard to promote it. And there we try to make around 10 million hectares of degraded land into productive land. We are restoring that land, and we are trying to create 2 million jobs. So there's a number of programs going on around the world, but specifically in Africa and other um, LDCs where we really feel that there is a clear need for making land uh, and uh, restoration as the main priority of the government and uh, all the partners present on the ground. We really look forward to partners like you to have outreach of information, advocacy role, and of course, raising the, you can say, public awareness about the UNCCD mandate and how land can be integrated to achieve all sustainable development goals as well as climate action on the ground.
1: There was a Pradeed Monga, Deputy Executive Secretary of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, on the Land from Ordo in the People's Republic of China, talking to Wandi Le Kalipa. It is now 1745 Central African time. Your economics now.
6: In economics news right now, Mali state revenues from mining companies have risen 1% last year to 454 million US dollars. Mali is the third biggest gold producer in Africa after South Africa and Ghana. Gold overwhelmingly dominates its mining sector, which provides about a quarter of government revenues. Gold price rise had offset a fall in exports and roughly stable production. Gold producers, uh, including Ren Gold Resources and Anglo Gold Ashanti, have operations in Mali. The country also exports gold from artisanal miners in neighbours such as uh, Ghana and Guinea. And Kenya's main port of Mombasa has handled 11.9% more Kego in the first half of the year, helped by increased efficiency after its handling capacity was expanded. The increase came despite uncertainty surrounding national elections in August, which have since been nullified by the Supreme Court. Kenya will hold a fresh presidential election on October 17. Last year, Kenya commissioned a second container terminal worth 300 million U.S. dollars. The port, which is a major trade gateway to East Africa, handles imports such as fuel for Uganda, Burundi, Rwanda, South Sudan and the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Economists say rumours of a possible cabinet reshuffle in South Africa could heighten investor concerns around policy uncertainty. Credit ratings agencies have indicated that they will only review the country's sovereign rating after the October medium-term budget policy statement and the ANC's elective conference in December. Tsepo reports. Markets
1: are waiting with bated breath to confirm yet another cabinet reshuffle. Investors and other market participants will have their eyes on ministries that have a direct link with the economy. But it's unlikely that the finance ministry will be affected in this round. Some investors will definitely welcome the removal of Mineral Resources Minister Musebenzi Zwani.
6: Meanwhile, South Africa's Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba has cautioned against the weakening tax morality, saying some taxpayers tend to justify minimizing their tax payments based on perceptions of government corruption. The minister also emphasized that co- corporates and wealthy taxpayers are able to use expert pr- practitioners to reduce their tax burden, while those who cannot afford them have limited scope to legally reduce their payments. Gigaba says there must be equity among taxpayers.
0: We should not have a situation where individuals who can afford to pay for advisors or complicated structures end up paying less tax than those who cannot afford such services. The closing down of the use of interest-free loans to trust to avoid donations Tax and estate duty is an example of the measures we need to take to ensure equity between individuals. Action must also be taken to ensure corporates pay their fair share
6: And Africa's biggest bank, by Assets Standard Bank, has appointed Sim Chabalala as sole executive officer, ending a dual role he shared with Ben Kruger and making him the first black person to lead Africa's largest lender independently. Kruger will step down as joint CEO immediately and continue as an executive director, reporting to Chabalala. Chabalala becomes the only black person to lead one of South Africa's biggest banks since uh, Siso and retired as head of First Rent which is uh, the second largest by assets in March 2015. Financial indicators now, the U.S. dollar trading at 12.92 South African rands, 9.94 Botswana Pula, 9.19 Zambian kwacha, also trading at 0.75 to the British pound and 0.83 against the euro. Commodities gold at $1,334, platinum $1,001 per fine ounce, the spot price of Brent crude oil at $53.39 per barrel. That's your Economics News.
1: Thanks, Risan. It is now time for our sports news.
0: Good evening, sports fans. I am Musiwudi Makura with your latest sports news at the Sawam. Starting off with football news, South Africa's national women's football team, Banyana Banyana, have arrived safely in Bolawaya, Zimbabwe, where they are going to take part in the Kosafa Women's Championships that gets underway on Wednesday. The South African women's senior national football team is in Group C, together with Lesotho, Namibia, as well as Botswana. Banyana Banyana will face Lesotho in their opening match at Lubeva Stadium on Thursday afternoon. Here is caretaker coach Desiree Ellis speaking of the team's preparations ahead of the regional tournament. Well, ideally we would have wanted a friendly, um, but uh, we were struggling to get a
7: friendly. Cameroon's got a new coach um, and I didn't want to play either. Um, Ghana didn't want to play either. And then we then got a camp in end of May where we brought in some players that we scouted Uh, because we've been to East London and players that we scouted around the SASA League and then also at the uh, USA camp for the national team selection. So we had that camp the end of May and then the end of July. In between end of May and end of July, we gave them training programs. So we did testing at the one. We did the same testing at the other one and the results was impressive. Um, We did a yo-yo test and... uh, The players' shuttles had improved by 15, 14 and 11 and that said said to us that they went back and worked. In between we also communicated with the club coaches to assist and also to use the same program if they see fit to use it for the clubs. Um, Then we had that that camp and then they were off to the World Student Games. In between there it was very difficult to get a camp Um, but I think the experience that those players gained there will hold us in good stead.
0: On Tarak Biyu, Springbok flank, Jaco Creel has been sent back home from New Zealand after suffering a shoulder injury in the 23 0 old draw against Australia in Perth. Creel will be the second player to return to South Africa after Prob Kony Oesthazen suffered a broken arm on Saturday in Perth. Now, Springbok wing, now Kossan has admitted that the All Blacks are littered with special players in their team, but the Springbok's focus won't be on individuals, but rather the entire team ahead of the Castle Laga Rugby Championship against the All Blacks in Albany on Saturday.
4: Uh, the, same, the same as Coach said earlier, you know, they're, they're special players. Uh, they've got special players all around in the whole squad. So whoever plays, they're always going to have good players, quality players going out there. And I don't think you should focus on just one guy or three guys, you know. Like I said earlier as well, it's a team effort at the end of the day. So if we cover all our bases as a team, you know, hopefully we can get the result on the weekend.
0: Albany is situated in the north of the city of Auckland and has a big population of South African expats but Skosan doesn't think that uh, they will have any influence over the fact that it remains an away match for the Springboks and says it's always tough playing the All Blacks anywhere in New Zealand.
4: I think it's a, it's another game at the end of the day, you know, it's 18 minutes that we have to play, it's home or away obviously it's if you're at home you have a bit of a home ground advantage with the crowd being behind you but we're still are playing an away game there's still a New Zealand team in New Zealand so it's still going to be a tough challenge for us to go out there you know and get the result but we just need to do what we need to do on the weekend and hopefully we can get the result
0: on to cricket news, Fav Duplessis has been appointed South Africa's one-day international captain and replaces A.B. De Villiers, giving him the top job in all three formats of the game. The 33-year-old was the first uh, to captain South Africa's T20 team and stepped up to replace De Villiers as a test captain back in December last year. He has played 43 tests, 113 ODIs and 36 T20 internationals for the country. Cricket South Africa CEO Harun Logat says Duplessis has a established himself as one of the best leaders in world cricket and this was reflected in his appointment as the captain of the world 11 currently engaged in the t20 series against pakistan now duplessis first series in charge of the odr squad will be at home against bangladesh next month well those are your sports news at the hour, stay tuned to channel africa for more news from an african perspective This is Africa Digest. It is
1: 1755 Central African time. Let's recap top stories. Forty years on, South Africa remembers one of its anti-apartheid giants. MSF suspends its work in southeastern Central African Republic. And that wraps up Africa Digest for all this hour from myself, Ospumele producer, Luyenda Mohamed, co producer, Debo and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za on SMS 1 plus, 796 plus 27 796 You can also tweet us on channel Africa1. We leave you with Love Potion by Mafi Gizol.